Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a brand new guest on. I have reporter Robert J. Hansen on. He is an investigative journalist for the Davis Vanguard and Newsbreak.com. He writes about criminal justice, police, homelessness, politics, and the economy. And we are going to talk about how domestic violence leads to children and mothers becoming seriously injured or killed and why this is overlooked by the courts. So I welcome you on to Slam the Gavel, Robert. How are you doing this morning? I'm great this morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you, to be able to speak to everybody. Yes, I'm glad to have you on. Um, You know... Do you think um, this, obviously this abuse is being overlooked in the family courts? And you know, what are your thoughts? Because you know, I have said, and, and, and when we were talking earlier, why if there is evidence of threats of violence, of murder, why doesn't the judge stop it and call the DA and put the brakes on it and take it to criminal court? That is um, something that is alarming that we're discovering here by covering uh, family court cases. Uh, In the case of an Orange County woman, uh, Tara Slinger, there was, as you reported, you had Angel Law on, and that recording was played to the judge, and um, they just, they they typically don't do that, as some judges and others, other professionals and lawyers have told us, you know, that, um, which is interesting because if you look at court orders, if, if they're violated, uh, you know, custody orders, if they're violated, it does say that they can prosecute them for criminal charges on there. And, the, you know, if you look at the fine print that the, in California counties, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I'm based out of Sacramento, California. So that's primarily where my work is, but, you know, mm-hmm. my knowledge of it is, is within the state. Um, and so, it's really disappointing because in, you know, we don't know what happened to Tara, but she did, uh, I don't know how she passed away, but she was found dead um, Thanksgiving weekend, just a couple months after this conversation with her ex-husband, where he says to the step, uh, to the, to his former mother-in-law, you know, she asked him when, or what would your mother think if she, you knew, she knew you were doing this to not letting her, your children see your grandmother he said well she's dead and soon you you will be too so mm-hmm. it doesn't happen matter mm-hmm. and so uh i don't see how that isn't something that even if it wasn't directed to the district attorney's office why that wasn't something that alarmed the judge to uh, alter custody arrangements do you think there are uh <sighs> lazy that they just want to get this case out of their courtroom to move on to the next one because their dockets are so full that's that's a compacted question there so the dockets are full though because of them allowing cases to be continuously challenged and represented in the court so they're ongoing longer than they need to be in the first place i don't know that laziness really plays a role though i think it's i mean i think there's they already have their their minds made up on who they 
feel is best suited to take care of the children and they can't really be convinced otherwise because as we know a lot of these cases we see a lot of hearsay evidence she said he said stuff and uh so at a certain point um judges and you know attorneys might feel that all this stuff is is um are things they're they're no longer willing to consider because they've already they feel like they've already seen enough, and that they're they might have already made rulings that they feel like that's where they're going to stand, and and that's it. Nothing really could be and nothing's going to change their mind about it. But you know, especially in Terrett's case, Stillingers, I, you know, they're from a wealthy family, or he is, and so, um, the money that gets spent and on divorce attorneys to continue these cases on and on and on uh, setting people typically the mothers into poverty or you know is it can't be overlooked either and the stress that gets put on them and and these um these cases are allowed to go on a lot longer than necessary and i believe there are some judges that i mean they have to know what they're doing at a certain point i just think they in some cases have um there might there you know there i don't want to come out and say and accuse anything you know be speculative but there appears to be some type of you know bias or, un, or favoritism to a certain party that's not understandable i think you know well a lot of people think all these cases are predetermined even before people get in there. They've already, you know, went to the watering hole and they've all talked about the case and they have all, have it all figured out. It's already mapped out and how it's going to play out. And whoever has the most money or whoever is connected to the judge wins. Or connected to the courts in some way. Right. right. It, it does appear that way. Uh, there's an older case out of Sacramento where a mother uh, was on, she only had, uh, she was on a fixed income and her former husband, I believe was a nurse with Kaiser. At any rate, um, he was awarded custody and then she was ordered to pay $800 of her $1,100 a month in, in child support, which uh, let her, she's homeless now. Um, I haven't followed up with her myself, but I, I have, I've been meaning to, I just have got a lot of, I have a lot of stuff in the queue and not a lot of bandwidth to get things done, but that's another story I've been meaning to follow up because that was over 10 years ago when that mm -hmm. ruling was made. And so her children are grown now and I believe they, you know, reconnected um, later, but it, that's just one case where, you know, it's, there was, again, the whistleblower on that one was a court reporter who even said, and this doesn't even look right. How can you order someone to pay that much of their income? It's child support. I don't, and uh, that's seems to be, you know, the, again, with um, Sillinger case, you know, he's has attorneys that cost, you know, paying over a hundred thousand dollars in attorney's fees for him uh, and has all this money. And they're forcing her out of the house to leave and, and then taking her kids away from her. 
I don't see how they can expect anyone to, you know, psychologically survive something like that. Um, all at the same time with um, having to leave your house, not having anywhere to go and, and, and then having to hear those kind of threats like that, it's, um, it's upsetting. And there's other inconsistencies. Again, this is, you know, it, it alters by county. So, you know, there's recently I did a story of a woman who uh, in uh, out of Modesto, California, she's, they had shared custody for a few years. And um, allegedly the father made a um, phone call that she had attempted suicide. And then the cops showed up at her house and forced her into, you know, psychiatric care um, against her will. When they showed up, beyond her new fiance didn't know what she, they were talking about, but, you know, forced her, made it, you know, they said made it seem like he couldn't refuse letting them in. And then when they came in, they physically restrained her, took her. And then within a week, shortly, like that same month, well, let me, before I move on, when they go outside, to, when she's on the gurney and they're putting her in the ambulance, the fiance told me that he saw the father standing there with a smirk on his face. So we don't know if he actually called or not, but like, how is he? He says his son called him and let him know, but that it doesn't and then for them to turn around and use that on her to give you know an emergency order giving him full custody taking away any visitation rights after she's has evidence of him have being abusive there's video there's audio recordings of him you know physically you know attacking or abusing his kids um multiple surveillance videos showing the police being constantly called over to their house. Like he's using the police to harass her. Uh, and he had even been arrested for domestic violence uh, and, um, and burglary in two, a uh, few months before they divorced in 2016. And then, and he was already on probation at that time for auto theft. Uh, and <laughs> none of these things mattered when it came to, whether or not she, you know, taking, you know, his any custody from him, they they had shared custody from there on out, and the case just kept continuing and continuing oh with the God. petition for custody getting refiled, you know, almost year after year, uh, until finally in 2020, this that you know, they filed for divorce and first the first custody was ordered in 2017, and then it was 2020 where the new petition came out alleging her, you know, and, and it seems like, you know, he just, he just gets to say this one time and then that's it. Whereas, you know, she, her, she had an attorney for a while that, that uh, didn't take it, you know, didn't press the issue and present evidence. And uh, yeah, it's um, so it, it doesn't, it, again, I can't really, a lot of these things, I can't score up how some judges make these decisions. Again, what, why was it he was able to just say, oh, well, there's this, she, so she's a threat to the children because she, there was alleged attempted suicide that doesn't seem like it even was true. Um, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Some, it's, it's, yeah. Well, 
you know, that's it's so antiquated that he would uh, make a phone call saying she was suicidal. Back in the Victorian <laughs> days, as we all know, if a man got tired of his wife, he would just put her in a mental institution so he could move on to the next wife. Not to knock men. I don't want to knock men. because No, no. That happened, I believe, that happened in this country even early before suffrage or even during mm -hmm. that time uh, where, you know, women with mental people, anybody with mental health, they didn't want to listen to. They just labeled them as something, someone with a, uh, some type of psychiatric, psychological disorder and put them, put them away. Mm -hmm. Typically women. Yeah. And, and they're still doing it today. It they have different terms for it now, but yeah. Uh, and these judges don't seem to have the best interest of the kids. Uh, I don't even like that phrase, the best interest. It's mostly the best interest of the pocketbook. It does seem that way. Um, <laughs> bring up best interest of children. There's When we talk about cases of CPS with lower income people um, and those that can't afford high class lawyers and things like that, there seems to be a different concern for the children and putting them in foster care really quickly versus those who have money that can do this back and forth and back and forth and cause further trauma on their kids. Uh, and something between the two that I can't, that I've had trouble coming, you know, uh, and I'm not done. I'm still, you know, going, I'm still looking into this. How, how in CPS court you can take their children away from their parents and then quickly as almost seemingly as fast as you can, in some cases, push them through the system and foster care and adopt them out. Um, knowing that ripping kids away from their parents is probably the most traumatic and damaging thing you can do to a child. Mm -hmm. Even if there's some, even if there's some, you know, light drug use there, there's no, and no actual physical uh, abuse or neglect. That's, you know, leaving parents or leaving children with their parents is paramount when we get mm -hmm. that. And that's what they argue it when in those cases, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they, and so they want to keep the children safe and they take their kids and then they, you know, but then we have these other cases where they are with one of the parents already, but they're courts and, you know, there's with reunification therapists, they will uh, allow the two parents. They say, well, the most important thing in this case is to make sure that both parents have, are both, are both parents are in the child's life, mm -hmm. which doesn't seem to be the concern in the CPS cases. But then all of a sudden these people who have money and are, keep dragging, going through the courts, going through the courts, petitioning. Then there's a chief concern to make sure both parents have custody when, you know, um, it, it doesn't seem like it. And then when they do the reunification, they put, they take the custody from one parent, typically the woman into the custody of the other one and just completely reverse. They, they still just take one of the parents out of their lives and often with an abusive parent. Uh, and even if they're not abusive, that, that's that still contradicts their, their message of what's important for the family and the children. 
So <clears throat> that's, I, I don't see the judges back to, I don't see them not knowing what they're doing. You know, um, we do see a lot of the cases are backed up. Like we said, there's, there's a lot of cases that are, and, and attorneys spend, I mean, good attorneys spend a lot of time reviewing these cases and they can only have so many a month. So I don't see how judges having as many that they have to oversee can even really put much time in, in considering with a, you know, with a fair amount of thought, how these cases should be decided. Um, and Yeah. With sometimes I also think the attorneys are a big problem. Uh, uh, stoking the, the flames and keeping it going and then running continuances to drag these cases out. Um, do you see a lot of women losing custody of their kids or is it neck to neck with the fathers? Um, so it, it seems in, so there's oftentimes I think women in general, uh, women, I think are awarded custody the majority of the time, maybe not, you know, it's not like 90% or anything. I believe numbers somewhere, somewhere in the low seventies, I want to say, but, um, when, the cases are still ongoing and these custody battles are still going on and on. Like you said, with lawyers still, you know, want to, you know, help, you know, submitting motions for custody petitions. And they, the month when there's an allegation of abuse then by the mother, and in a few cases, even the father, the children will say it. And they're, instead of investigating or looking into those allegations of abuse, oftentimes then the father will claim parental alienation. Mm -hmm. And that's how those, and then, and once that happens, mothers, not always, I mean, in, in another case, it was the father, in fact, but they, just take custody from that mother claiming a parental alienation and give it to the father who has, who had just got, was just, you know, there's allegations of abuse that they didn't, they're just overlooking. That seems to be, I mean, the lawyers have a role in this too. You know, they're, they're, they seem to be in it. Like I said, there's no, it's not an accident that, you know, people's account that their savings accounts and people run out of money going through divorces like this. Um, I've been meaning to speak to more lawyers about this and I, and I haven't gotten to that yet. So I don't want to say too much about what I've seen or not out of lawyers, but uh, there's, there are, um, there are victims, uh, women's uh, nonprofit agency in, in Santa Clara that, it seems to instead of actually help support women in domestic violence, they they're they're operate as a uh, divorce court referral agency, which is um, frustrating. Mm -hmm. Because then these 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 lawyers come in and they get paid all this money and then nothing happens in for their in their favor. 
if, if, if evidence isn't being presented, things aren't considered like that, then what are the lawyers even doing? Just, you know, racking up uh, bills. Uh, if they're getting paid by this agency, then why not have the case just go on as long as it can? They know they've got it an income from this. It was uh, a woman's aid or something. Um, there, it's a nonprofit agency that supports women, so of domestic violence. But then they have a they have lawyers, divorce attorneys that they've referred them to, that end up not doing anything for them. And that's about really all. That's, there's more reporting that's going to come out on that, but um, hmm. yeah, it's um. Like I said, there's it's not an accident that the family court system is a multi-billion dollar industry for divorce attorneys. Oh, most definitely. Um, it seems, uh, I'm sure you have noticed this, but in family court, as soon as they get in there, whoever calls out the first accusation of anything uh, usually mental illness or parental alienation, then they've already won their case. Unfortunately, yeah, it seems it doesn't. It's it's just odd how um, certain accusations or allegations are are considered, whereas other and other evidence and proof and court records, like I said, of. Uh, domestic uh, restraining orders being filed on people and, you know, abuse of, and that's not to mention, you know, not taking children over the age of 14, not taking into consideration what they think or say, because that's also part of it in his, in California mm -hmm. at the age of 14, a judge is allowed to consider listening to the child's wishes and who they want to be with. Mm -hmm. And especially in alienation. It, you know, it doesn't, it might work for small children, but, you know, once adolescents get, you know, once kids get to that age of adolescence, it, it doesn't seem to do any good except traumatize kids. And we see this with the Langs and these, these uh, other children in Utah here recently mm -hmm. where they're being forced for vacation and they seem terrified to have to go with the parent. And even in the Utah, they, they order reunification for a 16 year old and his 12 year old sister mm -hmm. that then the reunification order got rescinded. They, they canceled the reunification therapy, but then still had the 90 day no contact order that was to go live with their father. Who they, the 16 year old says mm -hmm. physically and sexually abuses them. Mm -hmm. And they're not being there and the children aren't even being listened to, mm -hmm. which that one is very frustrating because, mm -hmm. uh, we all know at the age of 14 or 15, we we're pretty headstrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can, you know, of course, psychological abuse happens where parents do turn their children against the other one. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think the parental alienation is the right term for that mm -hmm. because of the way parental alienation is misused by, uh, by abusive and narcissistic parents. Um, when they're accused of abuse, then they allege parental alienation. Well, if 
and that that kind of obfuscates and clouds the actual instances where there is psychological abuse of of a parent turning one against the other one. So, right. Yeah, um, go ahead. Um, these judges, for instance, um, a case. A 15-year-old was speaking with a judge sequestered with the, you know, court reporter typing everything with the attorneys. And he... Mediator. Yeah. Yeah, and he told the judge what he wanted. I saw the transcript. And the judges came out and twisted what this kid said and used it for their own false narrative. So we can't... these kids' voices aren't even going to be heard anyway, unless it's a decent judge. I haven't seen any of those. They're far and few between, unfortunately, it would seem. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't believe every judge behaves like this. I believe there have to be some that are righteous and, and you know, mm-hmm. and just, as their title would suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there's just not enough oversight and, in um, not eyes on the court when it comes to, when it comes to family court cases, a lot of them are, a lot of them are kept concealed or they're confidential. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, you know, family court proceedings, you know, it's still arguable that they're just as open to the public as a criminal case proceeding mm-hmm. and that there needs to be more people watching and access to the courts to keep judges from doing things that would outrage the public if they knew this was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that, that the country has the manpower to make these or to put juries in all these cases. Um, juries probably would help too. And not leaving it in the hands of these judges if they can't make these decisions, mm-hmm. but we have trouble filling criminal juries, right? Right. As it is, right. So, um, unfortunately, you know, there was a law that was that was would have made judges take domestic violence uh, classes, uh, a training uh, that would help them better identify cases of abuse. And domestic violence, uh, which didn't ha- didn't make it through the uh, judiciary committee here in the state in California legislature, but I believe that bill is going to be revisited now in the new in this new session. But um, that would have also banned the use of reunification therapy, um, and which would have been in accordance with um, Caden's law, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, um, they, yeah, I just, I, I um, if, if they can't figure, start to figure it out, something's gotta be done here. And I just don't know what, um, you know, also kind of all, all, nailing down the viability, the credibility of, of, of court experts when it comes to whether it be domestic violence 
experts or you know these parental uh, these parental alienation or uh, reunification therapists. I I don't see any viable you know when they when in a criminal case they've got court experts to testify to um, you know DNA or all this you know any and 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 their their testimony goes to convict people all you know often based you know and a lot of it's supported by these credible experts and for other experts coming in and experts in air quotes coming in and and attesting to things that aren't totally agreed on or based in uh in you know scientifically or in the even accepted widely in the in their profession being used as expert testimony in court cases seems to be more prevalent than it should be and it doesn't again it's, it's inconsistent when you compare the two um which is something again that's something i've had a hard time that's that's something i'm i'm doing everything i can to try to bring the light and eventually hopefully you know make some change on I think the disturbing thing is, is when a guardian ad litem, who is an attorney, obviously, uh, maybe some people might not know, but they are, um, they will start making psychological decisions and uh, tell the court, well, you know, I have to observe mom or dad with the, with the kid. It's like, you do not even have a PhD or whatever you. You don't have a bachelor's in psychology. No. Alone a PhD, right. So I don't. They're usually public defenders or in some case, right. I, I don't know why we even have guardian ad litems, but I don't know why a judge would even listen to a guardian ad litem say that they have to do some psychological uh, testing on a parent. This is um, very scary. Yeah, well, what I agree. Why? Why are we taking what a lawyer says uh, and putting that much weight in something regarding mental health and mental wellness? I don't. You would think that would be preserved, like strictly and solely for practicing doctors of psychology that would be it mm -hmm. and, and and neutral ones too i mean not even with particularly with reunification therapists i found uh they get paid large sums of money but even court uh mediators and now court reporters even they have to pay for court reporters to come in since of covid you know um when parents are on the hook to pay for these outside professionals to come in and then typically and especially if, if one party pays for it, um, I don't see how they could come in and make a, an objective decision on anything when one party is paying for the other one, even if it ends up getting split later down the line. Um, I think the court having, bringing in outside opinions that aren't, that they don't get paid for 
would go a long way. I mean, for mediators, I think the court should provide more than just one mediator per case if, if these are ongoing, because then to, for there only to be one that the court provides to then have to go out and, and pay another one, how are those mediators going to be impartial? Mm-hmm. Knowing where their knowing where their income is coming from, um, why is it uh, that a therapist that stands to gain tens of thousands of dollars comes in and makes a statement that then you know totally flips the custody on its uh, you know does a one eighty on the custody instead of it being an outside professional that has no financial interest in the case to come in and, you know, give an evaluation. Maybe they can be compensated by the court instead of, instead of the families, you know, um, it's, I always have respect. I'm always have a lot of, um, I'm always very, um, I have a lot of reservations of people's motives when, when money's involved. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that there is any, you know, nefar- but when, you know, I always pause when I see who's benefiting financially from something. Go ahead. Well, if, I'm sorry. <laughs> if, if they're going to hire a psychologist, uh, their insurance company would cover it. Most of it. I think so. I, you know, I've been told that there's certain, so in the case of reunification therapy, I don't believe that insurance covers that. I've I've seen, I mean, that's from what I understand that they're they're not covered. That's not covered by insurance. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But yeah, um, and if insurance covers it though, you could come in, you could bring in other family therapists rather than a special like instead of people from like family bridges we've have a long history of seeing conduct of and, and hearing from children that have gone to family bridges that have terrible stories after going there. Um, and, you know, family bridges operates across the country in their education therapy organization. But if there's such a short list of these experts that come in, they should, they should widen that and expand that. And allow more therapists that don't seem to have such a friendly connection or such a tight net relationship with the courts to come in and, and give their opinion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, and then going back and then listening to the children would be a good start too. Right, and even these judges looking at the evidence, there are judges that of cases I followed in North Carolina, where these judges are not even looking at evidence at all and they're handing this uh an infant over to a drug abuser um right a severe drug abuser that that, that neglects their children right mm-hmm. um and even federal court is the same way they're not looking at people's evidence that they're trying to get uh, some type of um justice of what was done to them they're not even looking at exhibits evidence and they're just ruling them irrelevant. No, it's true. You know, you mentioned North Carolina. Uh, NPR has done some great reporting recently on that where they've found that parents 
who didn't completely pay the child support that they were ordered to by the courts, that in of itself was enough to keep their care uh, to a, uh, for the courts to keep their kids in foster care and even adopt them out. Even if the parents had turned their lives around, got off drugs, did everything the court asked them, got jobs, they still, at the end, if they didn't have that child support paid for, would lose custody of their kids and their and their parental rights to their kids. That in and of itself, which in California, there is a, a law, it's not binding, but there is a law that got signed this year or signed, came into effect this year that discourages uh, county child uh, detective agencies from pursuing child support out of um, from parents if it would they'd have to prove that it doesn't interfere with the re reunification of, of parent of children with their parents before they can seek child support from them. We don't know how much effect that'll have. We'll see. And it's like, it, it, it could go, it could go further. Um, and not requesting parents who typically, again, we're saying CPS, especially were probably not well off in the first place, ordering them to play, pay, child support to the children that you're keeping them from in the first place. In fact, I did a story on a fellow. Um, I just had a second interview yesterday where uh, he had no contact with his kids, was never married to the mother and something happened with her and CPS took the kids and put them in foster care. But they said they didn't know where the, he was the father. So they didn't even seek out kinship. So what they did was they are charging him with the same uh, whatever she did on him. And he didn't even do it. He didn't even have any contact with these kids. It's outrageous. Yes. And they're making him pay child support out of his disability. <laughs> typical, typical. You know, it doesn't what, sound too dissimilar from other cases. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, of course, it's going to be very difficult to get rid of that money factor, that child support. I think, I just think child support should just go away. The money factor, maybe all this fighting would go away if we didn't have this child support issue. Perhaps. I mean, uh, you know, in, in divorces, the financial aspect of the divorce is, is typically decided well after or well before the custody issues resolved. Yeah, I mean, if you ask me if eliminating money out of a lot of things would help a, a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wouldn't just cloak family courts. Um, I mean, unfortunately, you know, that's not going to happen. But, and, 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 you know, we do need foster parents. There are cases of abuse that children mm -hmm. need to be in, in a home that, that cares for them. Um, and, and foster parents need to support in order to do that. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, speaking of foster parents, though, um, in California, we found that, um, oh, I wish I had the figures off the top of my head, that over 50% of the people that are homeless were in foster care and had gone through the CPS foster care system here in California. We've In Sacramento, we've on any given night, we've got 10,000 people in Sacramento County that are, that are homeless. 
And we're saying half of those people were failed by the family and, and foster court system or care system. So, you know, if it's if it's failing, I believe it's way higher than 50. I just gave a modest estimate because I can't mm -hmm. recall it. If foster parents are not actually caring for their children, you know, we see a lot of ch children bouncing around different house, different house, different. Mm -hmm. Then what are what are the foster parents doing to make the kids need to leave every time? It can't just always be these kids. And of course they're troubled, but and they don't want to be there probably in the first place because a lot of times they probably just want to be with their parents, mm -hmm. even if there are not ideal conditions. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, um, if we're having kids go from you know as soon as they're done with their foster care at the age of eighteen than going out to the streets and just thrown out, which I've talked to a lot of homeless people because I, I, mean, I cover homelessness. They say that they were with CPS or they had foster parents. And as soon as they turned 18, they were thrown to the streets with no guidance, with no support, no mentoring, no skills. And then they're expected to go get a job and be productive members of society when they're 18 and homeless. That That's not, that's not even feasible. Mm -mm. it's not close I mean it's just not even reasonable there are success stories that you'll hear that you'll find here and there of, of people going through the foster care system and then you know going on I guess to college and then and getting up on their own feet but if that's a success story that that shows the brokenness of that system mm -hmm. you know I um So as we can, as you know, I, I'm not trying to get, I want to, I'll digress from the homelessness aspect of it, but we can see how far reaching and connected all these issues are mm -hmm. into other issues, right? Which, you know, in the real world, everything's interrelated to some degree, so. You know, do you think, I mean, I won't keep you all afternoon because I could talk all day. We could talk about this all day. All yeah. day. <laughs> this is an all day, you know, marathon, but do you think if family court was abolished and took everything back down to civil court where uh, perhaps a parent could request a jury when there's false allegations thrown, just thrown out of, out of an attorney's mouth that isn't thinking? You know, maybe not abolished, but re definitely reimagined and restructured, maybe torn down and rebuilt. Um, you know, I, I think that's, you just said something that gave me and it kind of struck an idea that, yeah, maybe we can't put juries in every case, right? But right. if a case has gone on for three years, say, mm -hmm. and we can't resolve anything and people, there's still contentious arguments between the parents and they can't seem to get along and share custody, which mm -hmm. most parents can because they want to yeah. just get on with it, right? Right. Um, if we can't come to some reconciliation after I'd say, well, three years seems about as long as they need to go. And we've heard cases going on for six, seven, way longer than that. As in, right. I mean, and after three years, I mean, even a jury of six peers coming in and, and to evaluate and then people giving able to present a real genuine case and put an end to these and make a decision final, you know, make a final decision, you mm -hmm. know, just, I don't, and again, if, if these cases aren't, you know, that would probably happen in maybe 10 to 15% of cases or the ones that go this far that have 
you know, to have parents that seem to be unable for whatever reasons to get along, you know, if judges are going to start making decisions that end up leading to people getting killed or hurt because they're left with abusive parents where they keep, take custody away from, you know, uh, loving parents or, and just, or just drive people crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're just going to keep letting divorce attorneys and, and people file petition after petition, allowing this to stay drug up in the court or hung up in the court. I mean, when's it going to end for some people? Mm-hmm. And at some point, I think there's got, and again, I think if there's certain while these judges do get kind of burnt out or they're already predisposed, you know, they're already so inundated and subjected to the, to the, to the case that their objectivity by no fault of their own, even might be somewhat compromised, you know, just from seeing it so so long and so often and all this, each side saying so much about the other side that at this point, again, I think after a few years, we say enough, enough, let's call in a jury and have them decide it and let both sides present their case. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything that could fix, help fix this and the legal abuse that goes on and um, the collusion that goes on, I think, not you know, not to kind of change the subject, but if a parent picks an attorney that knows the judge, that they've got an in. Or if an attorney picks, or if every parent picks an attorney that knows the judge, it, and it's going to, um, it's going to go along with whatever the court says against the best interest of their client, then they've picked the wrong one too. And they've, mm-hmm. then that's just, the, there's also, you know, there's cases where that happens too, where these divorce attorneys, they're hired and there's a bunch of money spent on them, but they end up doing nothing for the parents. Mm-hmm. So both ones, if they have an in, that in could work both ways, depending on the attorney. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, you know, I, if these judges aren't going to listen to 15 year olds, then uh, what's, the, what's the point? Right. I mean, at a, again, and a 15 year old who's probably gone through this for a few years with their parents, you know, they're probably getting sick of it. Having to, you know, sharing custody. I, I, I was fortunate. My parents were to, you know, were together most of my life. And, um, uh, we had to go stay with you know, family sometimes, but um, we always knew our parents loved us and they were always together. So we hadn't, didn't have to go share between one parent and another parent as children. And so I can only imagine what that does to kids, um, you know, with their friends, you know, they want to play with their friends this weekend, but then they have to go to their dad's that weekend because it's their dad's weekend. And it's, mm-hmm. The dad didn't do anything wrong, but the kids don't want to go because they'd rather play with their friends. There's nothing, you know, that's, an innocent, but that's just a situation that can that's gonna create more tension just just in, intrinsically. And so um yeah, it's uh unfortunately, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I know. And, and, and that, it's I, again, yeah, no listen to kids. If we can't listen to the kids, then I don't know. I mean that isn't there a saying that uh, about 
from the mouths of babes, something the truth. I can't remember what it is, yeah, but I know what you, yeah, I know what you're saying. You know what I'm trying to recall. Right. And so, and we know kids inadvertently say th things that are uh, too honest to people sometimes. And we see other parents, well, you know, like don't say everything, you know what I mean? And cause they don't know mm -hmm. that you're not supposed to just be honest. We learn that we learn how to lie and deceive as we get older. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, I don't think some of these kids, uh, when we see some of these kids that are seem genuinely terrified, that's not acting. That's not being coached into acting like that. Um, I wouldn't say. And so, I mean, otherwise they, they're going to be a, a tremendous actor when they get older. <laughs> some oh. of them. Um, right. When you say, I mean, yeah. And, and the children have to be listened to first and foremost. And I think that, uh, again, certain cases after a certain point, and we're not, you know, maybe only two years, but after, I'd say three years for some reason seems right. After three years of, of ongoing contention, we bring in a small jury that appears and then let, let it kind of wipe the slate clean and let everybody present a fair case and then get the lawyers out of it at, after that point, get everybody gets out of it. And then that's it, you know? And if the parent, you know, if the parents, if, if one side is given full custody, then the other side will have to wait till their children become adults before they can you know, have that same relationship that they want to have with their kids. Um, Cause I, you know, most parents I've talked to, even ones that have been accused of proclamation in the best interest of their kids, they've just go along with it. You know, parents who really think about their kids aren't trying to be confrontational or contentious with the other parent. And they're trying to find every way they can to, resolve the situation amicably for themselves and their kids mm -hmm. and their former spouse. And if judges can't do that and, and can't decipher who's abusive and who's not, then we need to have somebody, we need to have a, somebody else come in and do it and someone who's not paid to do it. Okay. One last question before you go. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of okay. Course. Here we go. So you know, these judges probably should have psychological evals and random drug testing. And if they're too burned out, then they should be pulled off the bench and put them somewhere else and put someone new in there. That could be, is that, a, is that the question? Should yeah. They... I mean, I mean oh, okay. or statement, maybe they should be doing this. Um, because you know you've got judges that I'm sorry you've got judges you're that fine, no, like, go ahead. that they're they're over seventy for Pete's sake. Go golfing, right. go right. sailing, whatever you're whatever you'd like to do. Why sit on Enjoy the bench? Enjoy your golden Yes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I get scared of people who drive over the age of eighty. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Honestly, I mean. Not to, to take anybody's rights away from them. And I believe driving is an essential right for economic, you know, upper mobility. But mm -hmm. if judges aren't being psychologically evaluated and don't have random drug tests, I mean, any other jobs, a lot of other jobs are subject to that too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and as important as judges, and I would go as far as to say that police officers and, and, and those who work in prosecutors' offices mm -hmm. and public defenders, 
they should be subject to random drug screenings and, and, you know, maybe not as maybe not random psychological evaluations, but maybe, you know, if you want to stay on the bench after the age of retirement, maybe, you know, should have a, just have a, a simple evaluation done and just speak to someone, ask, you know, talk to a psychologist about how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. What makes you want to continue? Why, why are you feeling you don't need to want to retire? Do you have such a passion that want to keep and wants to keep you, you know, practicing and uh, on the bench for this long? Um, and have them try to, to, to determine whether there's cases of burnout or whether there's a financial motive to stay involved or, you know, we know a lot of judges go into private judging. I don't know if you know about mm-hmm. that, which is, yeah, which we won't really, you know, that is a, that's problematic as well. But mm-hmm. I, I don't see that we're going to have, that would be a far, that's going to be a long road, uh, that, that, that's going to be a tall order, um, seeing as how in California we can't have judges even not fight an auditor's recommendation of what's needed. Um, there was a, in California, there was an auditor, an audit of um, the Oversight Commission, uh, Council or Commission for Judges here in the state, and there was recommendations made to improve it. And they fought it tooth and nail. They're still fighting it. Uh, the recommendations. I think there's a there's a there's a committee now that was formed. I think that the Center for Judicial uh, Form uh, Judicial Excellence mm-hmm. perform the one hit by Kathleen Russell. She's helped oh, yeah. staff. The Centers yeah, for yeah. Judicial Excellence. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. They. Yeah. The performance one. That's the that's the oversight. Sorry, I get them mixed up. <laughs> but anyhow, they they're they're trying. They are forming the. They're discussing, I think, currently what needs to um, they're with the to try to implement the recommendations of the audit. And uh, forgive me, I can't off the top of my head remember everything that was recommended, but I know that they weren't happy about that. And if again the lobbyists came in and their the lobbyists for judges and, and those attorneys came in to kill the legislation that would have um, required domestic violence training. If that got killed in, you know, once it made it through the assembly, got to the Senate, or maybe it's the other way around, but it got to the, you know, one of the last final committees and then it just died. Um, if we can't have them take so many hours in those kind of classes, I don't know that we're going to, you know, allow them. I don't think we, we can expect them to want to police themselves even further by agreeing to, to allow themselves subject to random drug tests and psychological screenings. Though I think that's a great idea. I mean. They're just not held accountable to anything. I think, and that's, it's a major, I think this is a good, you know, thing to kind of end on is that (laughs) they're, (laughs) they're, they're, um, absolute immunity seems to shield them from far too much oversight and scrutiny and accountability um and without stronger oversight and without them being subject to some type of some type of accountability um for having too many you know having cases go on for far too long or making rulings that that where they weren't considering everything and making arbitrary decisions or biased decisions, 
they need to actually not just be disqualified from cases, but there needs to be some actual punitive measures taken against some of them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, mm -hmm. we saw what happened with, we, you saw um, Allen versus Farrell. Mm -hmm. And we saw what happened with the judges in the, in the different systems up there in New York when it came to Woody Allen and his alleged, you know, child mm -hmm. abuse, which, you know, the daughter came, I mean, now she's an adult and it's like, yeah, it happened. Like, so I don't, mm -hmm. and they made the mother look like she was crazy the whole time. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, in a nutshell, yeah. Woody Allen had, cause Woody Allen was Woody Allen. Right. Mm -hmm. And so people don't have to have a big name. Don't have to be a football player to get away with domestic violence or child abuse. Yeah. They can be just someone like, Tara Schillinger's ex-husband, who's just got a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So sad. So sad. You know, how can people reach you if they have any questions? So they can reach out to me. My email is um, HansonRobJ, H-A-N-S-E-N-R-O-B-J at gmail.com. And email is best. Also, you could find me on social media on most platforms, I res I'm pretty responsive on all of them. Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, you can connect with me there. Um, I will say that my bandwidth, though, for new cases is is uh, almost depleted. I don't know that I have much, but um, same. same. And we, yeah. So, but feel free to reach out. Um, I, I honestly, I would like to hear from any lawyers and professionals that, that are knowledgeable on this and have seen this, um, you know, retired CPS workers, uh, people's individual cases. I've seen so many of them now and that they're helpful. Don't get me wrong. And I still have some others that I'm going to amplify their voice, but we're trying to move on with the investigation into and actually getting other sources deeper within it systems to go on the record and talk about what they're seeing because without moving it forward, I can highlight is all these, all these things, individuals as much as I want, but if we don't start to have the people within the system and start to share with what they're seeing and, and move deeper into, into it, I have retired judges, um, and retired divorce attorneys or ones that got out of the profession because they saw things that they didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. Those who, those are the people I want to talk to. Mm -hmm. Well, I thank you so much for your time. And likewise, uh, Marianne, I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. I'd like to have you back on in the future sometime. So, um, anytime, anytime, just, yeah, I'm more than happy to do that. Okay. And thank you for what you do. You thank put you. a lot of work into this and you, yeah. You too. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, uh, don't jump off. Slam the Gals, a podcast help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here in the future with Robert Hansen and other guests as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.